This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. I want to take a moment to say I hope you are safe and healthy. Thank you for tuning in to this hour of togetherness, where we discuss what unites rather than what divides us. I also want to say this month marks the seventh year First Draft has been on the airwaves. All I can say is I'm stunned. The first show aired on June 3rd, 2013. It's been an amazing seven years, and honestly, when I started, I didn't have a vision beyond two episodes. But here I am, and guess how many author interviews have aired? I know you can't answer me right now, so I'll tell you. 297 Yes, 297 interviews. I'm truly incredulous thinking about all the books read and hours spent editing and thinking about these conversations. I feel so incredibly fortunate to be doing this podcast that I love and sharing it with you. So thank you so much for being on this journey with me, whether you began with interview one or are just joining for your first taste of first draft right now. I'm humbled and honored that you are listening, and I offer all the gratitude in my heart to the 297 authors who have said yes to an interview and have spent an hour of their time with us. I look forward to bringing you more conversations in the years to come. Sometimes I dream about seeing all of you in the same room someday. Who knows? Maybe that can happen. Until then, again, thank you for being here to listen. Coming up, an interview with Mary South, author of You Will Never Be Forgotten. Shiguro's Never Let Me Go, that's one of my favorite novels. And what I'm fascinated about what he does in that novel is he sort of indoctrinates you into the reality, uh, the same reality the characters are experiencing. And the characters also never really question that indoctrination. We'll be back with Mary South in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. For the last seven years, I've been producing at least 40 episodes a year of First Draft. It's a labor of love, but there is also labor involved, time and effort and thought. Whether this is your first listening experience or you are on your 297th episode, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft as a donating member. You can learn more and donate at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Your support helps keep conversations like the one you are about to hear going. As our society is changing to independent folks like me producing rich and meaningful content, like that on First Draft, we are simultaneously expanding the diversity of voices available for the public. This effort takes money, time, equipment, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. I know there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense to make. As a thank you for joining the First Draft community, I offer my patrons a lot of extras, the best being ad-free and pitch-free episodes. As a thank you for your patronage, I get you to the interview faster because you'll get your own dedicated feed without this ask. No please, no ads. Also, starting at just $6 a month, you will receive extras from the shows, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips from featured authors, books, and a monthly newsletter. I am also so grateful I often send extra goodies to my patrons. 
please beat the odds of having to listen to this request seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate any amount, and you know it will go to the continuation of these conversations focused on literary craft, content, and practice. I know that it's unlikely that you are in front of a computer right now, so I'd like to suggest adding a little reminder for yourself for when you get home to contribute to First Draft. Maybe make a note on your phone, an ink mark on your hand, scribble on a piece of paper, something along the lines of, First Draft, reminder, membership matters. Again, patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of the show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Mary South, author of the short story collection, You Will Never Be Forgotten. She is a graduate of Northwestern University and of the MFA program in fiction at Columbia University. Mary South has worked as an editor for the literary journal Noon. Her writing has appeared in American short fiction, The Believer, Bomb, The New Yorker, and Electric Literature, among others. Her collection, You Will Never Be Forgotten, explores the various ways technology touches and alters our lives and investigates the agency we may or may not have over this element of our personal and societal journeys. The stories in You Will Never Forget Me are dark and tender, absurdist yet realistic, and feature a cast of characters who interface with some of their greatest terrors in peculiar and unexpected ways. We began the interview with Mary South discussing her own relationship to technology. Where some of the st- stories, like I think, originate is just being a millennial woman, um, admittedly on the, the older side in my in my thirties. I just, you know, have seen technology evolve and change a lot, just even in my lifetime. You know, going from like the dial-up modem and Amazon being sort of this books-only through the mail venture into now like being this huge corporation that owns Whole Foods and uh, can send you anything and sort of has a stranglehold on the book market um, in a lot of ways. And now these hyper-fast internet speeds that like we're getting news updates in real time and commentary on real time and Twitter. And um I've seen like my own relationship with technology like evolve and change and, you know, to see how like, I think I actually have an okay relationship to, to social media, but I've seen like how addictive and it can be. And so I just sort of wanted to write about the hyper-connectivity of our modern lives and explore how the ways in which that can be both good and bad. There's some stories, you know, that are more tender and then some that really do so show the dissociation we can experience. And then we all need to find ways of coping through trauma and grief. But now we have all these like really modern ways, you know, that we've never had before. And I think that's interesting to explore. No matter how much technology changes, our like human behaviors are are always the same. And so those those behaviors are going to find new pathways and new routes. And um I thought, you know, maybe it's a little bit dangerous sometimes to like write these stories. I worried about them feeling dated at times, but sometimes like I read the collection again and I, it seems even more like that this is uh, just because it's about human behavior that it feels real to me. I guess that's where it sort of comes from. What is your personal relationship with the technology, if you can explain that? 
<laughs> um, yeah, it's it's such a big thing, right? But um, sometimes, you know, I feel like we all at times feel like sort of observers of technology, even though we also use it in our day-to-day -day lives in a lot of ways unthinkingly, you know, like just sending emails or now we're all very online, right? Um, video chatting and using Zoom to connect via our jobs and our and our loved ones. My personal relationship, like I used to do a, a lot of writing. I think part of, also part of the interest comes from doing writing for uh, SEO copy. Um, so like making a site rank higher in Google. I worked for Google as well, doing their version of Groupon, like writing ads, like, you know, spend $100, get $200 worth of this spa treatment. <laughs> and so, um, you know, just seeing like how much technology has infiltrated our lives. I don't feel like I have like a, I feel like I have a very, you know, usual kind of relationship to it. Um, and I'm not like a coder, engineer, programmer, but I really see it being involved in all of these ways and um, have had some experience just like writing copy for the internet. I think that's where some of the some of the strange forms come in the story or this the collection, like the story that's a frequently asked questions page. It's like, well, I've had to like create these different kinds of texts. So how can I create stories out of them? Knowing that you worked at Google and did this SEO, it, it makes me want to ask about your your title story, You Will Never Be Forgotten, where you have a woman and the narrator is very distant from the woman. Um, she's talking about her as the woman. There's no name. Um, we don't really get too deep into her head. I mean, we get her thoughts, but he the narrator also talks about other other people and other incidences happening around her, but that is um, a woman who stalks her rapists. She also works for a place like Google, looking to eradicate really violent or offensive or pornographic material that ends up on the internet. It's funny, this story I wrote, that's it, an, one example of a story that has become even more, I think, timely as, as we've gone on and, and you know, despite some of my original fears about writing about technology, like technology moves so fast and the internet and the internet moves so fast, but publishing moves much slower and writing a book moves much slower that I worried the book would seem of a time by the time it even came out. But it, that's it's kind of had the opposite effect in some ways that I wrote this story in 2015 um, before the presidential election and before the Me Too movement. And um, it's only seemed to gain relevance as time has gone on, not, not less. But um, some of the origin is it, of it is, you know, I never worked as a content moderator, but um, I've read, read about them and I've read several articles um, about how traumatic it is and how, um, you know, they, those people suffer from, who work in those jobs suffer from long-term PTSD. And that related to me about... Um, having PTSD from like, you know, what it's like to experience a sexual assault. So I wanted to write about like the sort of passive kind of like needing to recover from that. This woman is in a very passive position, like having to view all of this content and having to see the person who hurt her, like out in the world, living his life as though like it never even happened. And it feels very like sort of dissociating and she's just sort of has to watch it but like 
she doesn't watch it without any feeling. There's a lot of like anger and and hurt and you know sadness in there, which is hard for her to let go. I wanted to like sort of you know explore the experience of trying to recover from that and the way she heals from it is is kind of messy and like oftentimes like not advised right you should never stalk someone uh, online or in real life but healing isn't you know always easy and isn't always perfectly neat and that's where a lot of a lot of that comes from um and of course she's not really able to let go until the end of the story where it's like okay i've been doing this in like going about this the wrong way and i really need to try and move on in healthy ways i um wanted to show like only that recovery isn't always neat, but also that, you know, by the end of the story, she was really ready to do a lot of work in terms of moving on. Like, it's going to be hard work. That's why I didn't have like a sort of cathartic moment with the nature or something to show that it was going to be completely just fine now, because like, it's just going to be ongoing work but she will be able to get over it. Yeah, I mean, I think as a reader, you felt, as she's stalking this guy, you you felt so irate because, it, and it's so complicated because she had the energy to follow this guy, both virtually and in real life, but she couldn't move, at least during the majority of the story, move past that to, it was like she was re-traumatizing her, herself again and again and again, and you can't, judge how people heal or how they go about it. But what was interesting is that this guy had a very seemingly, you know, kind of perfect life. He had a good job. He had friends. He had um, a newsletter. He was sporty. He got this beautiful new girlfriend. And she became equally obsessed, I would say, with the girlfriend. Like at some point, I felt like she was putting more energy into watching this new girlfriend who had no idea the kind of person she was dating. And I could easily see how that would also become an obsession for her. Yeah, I, that there's two things in that. Um, there's the sense of injustice. The girlfriend doesn't seem to have had a traumatizing experience happen to her with this man. And so there's a, a question there of like, why was I singled out? And why was she spared, so to speak? But then there's also the fear of like, well, she seems okay now, but like, how long will that last? You know, I know who this man is and what he's capable of. There's a real fear there um, and a real vigilance for for other women. And also guilt, the guilt that, you know, she didn't say anything. And so um, will this happen to someone else? Uh, including the the girlfriend. That's part of why the vigilance comes and the fixation sort of over the girlfriend comes in too. She's obviously responsible for what happened and she knows that. She tries to warn her, but there's like, you know, a question there and as, as well as a concern. Like, why did this happen to me? And I hope it doesn't happen to you. What was your process in in writing this story? And was it similar to your general process? I usually write stories like trying to figure out the big plot points and then I try to figure out like well, what point of view am I writing this in and you know what does this character sound like so for this story in particular I sort of debated what point of view to to have it in um it's in a a very close third person from the woman's perspective and she's never given a name it's just always the woman and he's always the rapist and um I had a, a really close friend who's one of my early readers comment saying she should have a name and he 
he shouldn't and maybe it should be in first person so it's like we're really fully in her experience and I debated that for a while because I thought those were good points but I ultimately decided to not change how I decided how I was writing it which was that close third with no names because I wanted to like show how dissociated she was at the moment and how passive she had to be and um, how the part of her that really wanted to survive and heal was fighting against that, but that she was sort of put in this position. I also think that her anonymity, in a certain sense, is both protective as well as damaging. Like, it's damaging at her job that she's just this sort of um, person having to wipe this this traumatic content. And it's deliberate that she's kept out of sight. But um, her anonymity is also sort of protective in that you know, she she was afraid to share, like, this experience that happened to her. And it's okay that she didn't. It's okay that she wasn't ready to. There was a lot of decisions like that early on about how to write the story and a lot of, like, emotional thinking about, like, am I doing, am I writing this story correctly? And then the usual, like, how does this flow? When does, when does this pl- plot point happen or that plot point? And then just, you know, figuring out how she should sound in each sentence. I found that a lot of your stories were about people who just didn't know how to deal with their pain. So they dealt with it in very interesting and unexpected ways. For instance, you have a woman who lost her child who ends up using her breast milk to feed adults at a hostel or a woman who had a child that died and then she had another child who she basically had in the likeness of the first one and tried to raise her the exact same way until the age she died. So I thought it was interesting that that, that sort of theme happens in many of the stories. Oh, yeah. Um, that was definitely what I was trying to do, which was uh, have characters con- like dealing with confronting their pain. And in a lot of ways, they're dealing with it by not confronting it. Um, sort of how we grieve and get over grief is really mysterious to me and sort of fascinating as a a writer to try and explore because there is no really one moment i think when we start to move on um you know we they talk about the cycles of grief like you know denial anger bargaining depression and then finally acceptance there's no like clear path of how we finally get to that ultimate stage of acceptance and um it's interesting to me to explore like how people do it. And the question, like, for that one story that you mentioned about the mother who uh, has a second child and tries to remake her exactly as the first, I was thinking about, you know, when something as devastating happens to you as the death of a child, um, how do you move on from something so traumatic and, and sad? And I thought, well, what if someone just insisted that they w- were going to refuse to move on? What if they got stuck? And sort of the bargaining stage of grief, like, you know, no, I'm going to have my child back. This isn't really happening. And that's where the origin of that story came from, is like thinking about the stages of grief and thinking about what if someone just sort of refused to move on? Because one day, you know, you'll wake up after losing a loved one into death or something or any kind of any kind of loss, a big loss. And it'll it'll feel better for a while for no reason. And then maybe like some of the pain will come come back in waves. And sometimes we'll even remember something in the middle of deeply grieving, something funny about the person that we we loved and, and like feel very tenderly or, or humorously for a while. And then we'll remember the grief again. 
So how like our, our brains and our psychology even just moves beyond it is to me one of the one of the big mysteries that I'm interested in exploring. And in that story, the last one, not Setsuko, um, you open it up and it says, unlike most, most mothers, I gave birth to my daughter, Setsuko, not once, but twice. And so you, you're learning very slowly, like you can't exactly figure out what's going on. You're just kind of going with it. And then you realize that her first child died violently and that she had this second child basically like really to replace her same name, tried to give her the same memories, same birthday parties, same presents. And it's not working, um, obviously, because she's her own person and her marriage is stressed. And we learn that the mother herself has kind of a, a uncertain identity. She's of Japanese or- origin, but she was adopted and she's called by a Japanese name, but her real name is Karen. And I'm, I'm curious about starting the reader in a destabilized, uncertain position and moving them more towards certainty. I, I notice that happens in a lot of your stories and partly because they're, they're not typical situations. If you could talk about that and if you want to talk more about this not Setsuko story too. Oh, great. I, I love this question. Um, I, I love that it seems like they move more towards certainty or like facing what, what their hurt is um, as the story goes on. Um, there's, a, you know, been talk in, in literary classes and the literary world, like from time to time about epiphany and stories and the function of epiphany. And I don't really believe in um, epiphany per se. Like, I think we all can have these moments of realization that change us and um, alter our perspective, how we want to approach life and behavior and or a particular issue. But for me, like the, if you really want to change as a person or confront like a deep-seated trauma or issue, it's not like going to be a one-off epiphanic moment. It's going to be a process of like deep work or slow realization and like slow, almost reprogramming how you face the world. And that's what I wanted to like show in some of these stories. And like, so there may be like this big moment at the end of them. At the end of Natsuko, Natsutsuko, not to give too much away, but the mother has this big, this realization of like, oh, my project has failed. You know, she is her own person and I, and I um, can't mold her into the child I've lost anymore, which we all knew from the beginning that that wasn't going to work, but um, she's finally realized it. And I didn't want to like have it seem like, okay, everything's going to be all right now because She's in trying to force her daughter to become someone else. There's a lot of damage there that they're both going to have to do a lot of work to overcome. But sort of now that work is possible. I do, in confronting these stories, want to show like how healing is possible, I think. And what about starting out in a really destabilized place where the reader's unsure? That to me is is help like gets you into the character right away or gets you into the world right away. One thing, well, there's a writer I I love. Uh, I love Ishiguro's Never Let Me Go. That's one of my favorite novels. And what I'm fascinated about what he does in that novel is he sort of indoctrinates you into the reality, uh, the same reality the characters are experiencing, and the characters also never really question that indoctrination. So it's it's a novel about men and women who are clones, and then they are 
harvested for parts. And they just sort of never accept that, that they're regarded as these disposable people or not even really people at all. And they never say something like, we should fight against this unfair system. Um, we should have our rights. They say, oh, I wonder if there's a way we can work with the bureaucracy to have a little bit more time together before we're we have to give up our organs and, you know, complete our donations. And so I'm interested in like putting the reader immediately into the psychology of the character and the psychology of the world and like showing that indoctrination. I think it sort of reveals the unconscious assumptions and the indoctrination we experience in our own reality and things we take for granted that may be actually harmful or detrimental. For example, how we do treat Amazon workers in the warehouse. You know, they're optimized, they're tracked, their footsteps are tracked. They hardly have time to have a break to use the bathroom. A lot of us like know that's really messed up, but it's sort of just sort of accepted generally as like, well, that's capitalism, you know, that's, yeah, that, that's horrible, but how we do business, you know? So I like to put the reader in, into like the immediate mindset of like, what is this character unquestioning or what, what, how have they immediately kind of constructed their reality? And then we can sort of break that down as time goes along and like reveal some of these hidden assumptions. I felt like I, I recognized echoes of Never Let Me Go in this series. I was thinking about it as I was reading it. Yeah. So the first story in particular is sort of, is um a friend of mine calls it never let me go for, meets free two day shipping because uh, it is sort of a send up of um Amazon but like and hyper capitalism in as well as like sort of filtered through like an homage to that novel. Yeah, and that story that story is called Keith Prime, and yeah. basically you have your narrator who works in the Keith department of the fulfillment center. Yeah. So, you know, it's just sort of one step removed from Amazon. It's about like the disposability of people. Again, like these, these workers now who are working at Amazon now, like it's been shown they too suffer from depression. Some of them become like suicidal. It's so, it's so uh, upsetting to work there and to be treated as a sort of mach of machine to be optimized and tracked this just seemed like sort of one step further to me. Like it was really, it's really close. Like doesn't, it's not too far from treating people like that to sort of regarding them as completely disposable. But like, if you make it a little bit more speculative, then you just, you can see that even more clearly than if you just stick to realism and write a story about a straightforward Amazon warehouse and a warehouse employee. So there were choices like that sometimes, like, am I going to make this a little bit more speculative in order to show like, how twisted like our assumptions about the world can become, or am I going to be like super realistic, like the title story and kind of depict things as they are. I found that um, people's careers seem to be of interest to you as well. You know, talking about the people who work at Google or people who work in this fulfillment center, but also you have um, a brain surgeon and an architect, for instance, in, in the brain surgeon one, you structure it like it's a frequently asked questions. It's called frequently asked questions about your craniotomy. And it has questions like, is it true I will have to be awake during my craniotomy? And then the narrator answers that. She is a brain surgeon whose life is kind of falling apart at home. She, she is a neurosurgeon. She's writing the frequently asked questions page for her hospital's website. And um, she's she's a, she does go deep into 
um, one of the, the, what it's like to ex experience having a brain tumor and what the recovery and, or, you know, ultimate passing away from that would be like, because she's just seen it so many times. Um, but then she's also um, processing her grief over her husband's death. He has, uh, he had suffered a, a loss as well and wasn't able to get over it and had um, became really depressed and committed suicide. And so as the, the frequently asked questions go along, she becomes more and more um, sort of intimate with the reader, um, revealing more about her life and her pain and her grief. And it becomes not so much about um, her hospital or what she does for a living anymore as it becomes um, an exploration of, of uh, you know, grief and loss and how to process that and get over it. And she is, she is getting into a lot of detail there that a normal frequently asked questions page on a hospital website wouldn't, a hospital website would be much more clinical than she is, even from the very beginning of the, the Q&A when she's sort of the most professional she's going to be. But, you know, she goes into like very detailed description of, of like what it's like to pass away from a brain tumor. And um, so then I can see like that intimacy might make one feel that um, she's describing a personal experience. But she's that's just a, an indication of like where her state of mind is, you know, like she's she's so affected by her grief that even when she's at, at her um, sort of most clinical, it's really already filtering through. You know, I think sometimes when you experience a big grief, uh, other smaller griefs that maybe wouldn't hurt as much hurt more. You're sort of you're sort of in a very vulnerable state. And so, you know, she's used to like dealing with people at her job who are worried and scared and you know also grieving from losing loved ones and normally she'd maybe be able to handle that much better and in a much more professional manner but she's so vulnerable after the loss of her husband that that seeing other people vulnerable and seeing them afraid and grieving and hurt hurts her more too make, makes her feel their pain more too so like that's i think that comes out in those answers and so this is a, a different sort of format, and I'm wondering if you like to play with different formats a lot in your stories. I do. There's just a lot of um, pleasure for me in trying different forms. Like the the second story, The Age of Love, also has like sort of transcripts of it, um, in, of, of like phone chats. And, you know, the, the fourth story, Architecture for Mar Monsters, is positioned as a profile piece of a famous architect that then sort of goes off the rails and also becomes very personal. There's just, I just, I think it's fun for for readers, but also as a writer, like you, you try to go where the pleasure is, you know, like you try to go where your interest is because the writing will always be better. And it takes so, so long to write a story that you might as well like really go with what moves you, really try like something maybe that's a little difficult, but if you're get a lot of joy out of trying it that that's that's worth it in and of itself I think but then you know we're all, we're surrounded by so many new forms all the time in our lives log onto the internet and you do just cross maybe you're the normal occurrence of your day like read a frequently asked questions page or you read you know an answers page you know looking up like how do I mend my bathroom tile like there's a crack in my tile. How do I do that? And you come across a page like that on the internet, or you just get involved in email chain or 
a forum for a TV show you really like. We're like surrounded by so many different forms now, more than we ever have been, you know, ever in sort of life just by living with the internet. And um, it's fascinating to me to try and explore some of those. You mentioned the second story, The Age of Love, and this is where um, the narrator works at an old, um, like a retirement or um, nursing home. And he and another person he works there with start listening in on phone porn conversations between the male residents and these like 1-900 porn chats. And as he's listening to it, you also see him in his relationship at home with his girlfriend, Jill, and they can't really connect like he's holding back. And he tells her about these phone porn conversations. And for some of the men on the conversations, they're, they're, they're just reliving memories. They're, they're lonely and they're sort of asking these women on the other side to behave as if they were a girlfriend or a wife from their, their, their youth. And Jill gets kind of uh, brought into this and ends up chatting with one of these guys. And the more she chats with this guy, the further apart she grows from her boyfriend. Yeah, um, the story is really also about intimacy. Both Jill and the protagonist are coming from uh, backgrounds and childhoods where they were wounded. She had like sort of an unstable family life where... You know, her parents got divorced. Her dad was uh, in the military and not not around because of that. And then her mother um, was sort of emotionally not there for her. And the uh, protagonist also has dealt with the loss of his mother having like a nerve system disorder and um, needing a lot of care and um, needing a lot of support. And so his needs necessarily had to take a backseat, but also um, he sustained like a big loss that sort of dissociates him because he experienced it very young. And so they're in a relationship, but there's not a lot of intimacy there. They don't, they don't really connect in a great way. And that sort of works for both of them. She's He works odd hours in the nursing home and then she's a flight attendant and is going off um, at all hours to be on planes and work her job. They're in that relationship because it both like allows them to sort of avoid feeling, which they're very used to. That's kind of how they were trained is to avoid feeling. But they are human beings and they crave intimacy. And um, the, this uh, older man that she starts talking to in the nursing home, like they never have really a sexual conversation, though sometimes, you know, he describes experiences from his past that are romantic but um he's really able to talk to her and be intimate with her and talk to her with feeling and emotion which is something she's she's always craved and he's able to give to her and it just it reveals that her boyfriend isn't able to give it to her at all and she sort of tries to get to him get him to engage and he's not able to and he then sort of starts to sabotage the relationship because he sees her developing this intimacy that he also yearns for, but he does no way of figuring out how to create in his own life. So she ultimately leaves him because that's lacking and because of his jealousy and his insecurity get in the way of them being able to to really connect. But then the, the end of that story, it reveals like, oh, she was able to have this intimacy. She was able to grow and change. And he's 
faced with this loss, this loss of this relationship, but that's a, a breaking open that reveals like, okay, here's my opportunity to change, to become a better person, to try and find this intimacy that um, she was able to find. You had an interesting tidbit in there where you're talking about these older men and how lonely they are and how lonely people in nursing homes are in general and this experiment with these stuffed unicorns that they gave to people who were lonely who ended up telling their secrets and having intimacy with these stuffed animals both because they were there but also because somehow they were safer. Yeah that's a real news article that I read that was actually done in the nursing home and I found fairly upsetting in that you know I, I think that everyone is deserving of intimacy and deserving of feeling like sexual and sexy no matter how old they are and um, so the idea that like that would become like a treatment strategy or like we don't do enough to provide that for our elderly is very sad to me which is maybe why I included it in the story being like no we can't we can't go down that route we need to like provide people with the intimacy that they need and deserve the other thing i noticed in some of these stories were were i mean some of them are very uh were was very blatant but the idea of ghosts maybe stalking the dead or trying to bring the dead back to life and then you have one where it's um very blatant where you have uh, a story called realtor to the damned where the, the the main realtor his wife has died and they talk about about ghosts in these houses and and who they are realtors for yeah, that story uh, originated through a news article I read. There's something that people who are grieving will do in that they'll text or call the number of a loved one who has passed away just to say goodbye or talk to them because they miss them. And then sometimes they'll get a, a response. They'll get a text back um, because the phone company has assigned that number to a new person. And so some people have developed these long conversations over text just with um, a new person because of them wanting to sort of say goodbye to a loved one. Um, and that, you know, that's a sort of, uh, that's a, neither of those people are ghosts per se, but it's a sort of ghostly relationship or a relationship that is initiated because of a ghost in a sort of sense. And then I started thinking about ghosting and like how people will disappear on each other digitally and I also started thinking about like, oh, actual ghost stories, you know, from from the past that um, have informed literature and, and informed us. And so I sort of wanted to braid all of those things together into a story, which is how you get a story about a realtor who begins a text message conversation with a random person because he's texting his wife who he misses. And then the, the sort of text message ghost ends up, ends up ghosting him. But also, like, he and his wife used to make up ghost stories about properties they were going to sell. And it's a, it's a story about saying about how, trying to say goodbye. And, like, I think out of all the characters in my collection, he's really the one who's at acceptance and maybe in the best place at the end of that story. You know, ready to, like, fully let go of his grief and, and move on into the future in a healthy way. But the collection overall is like really, it is definitely concerned with ghosts and, and people who have passed um, and how that they still sort of show up in their lives. Um, I, I put the, the last story, not Satsuko, right after the realtor story because there's a lot of talk of ghosts in that one as well. Um, the husband is, is making a horror film about a, basically reenacting his trauma about the loss of his daughter, but 
it's you know it's a, a film and it's a genre film so he has a the daughter in the film be um, a ghost who's sort of haunting uh, the alive couple and um, ghosts are just you know uh, I think really um, about the grieving process and like and letting go and about us more than about a, any kind of supernatural supernatural fixation um, but so in that sense this the collection is very preoccupied with them like sometimes in a more vague sense and sometimes in a very literal sense and that there are actual ghosts in the collection and we've talked about a lot of dark themes and you know from content moderation to ghosts to trying to uh, remake your deceased child into a new child into your deceased child but i think there's a lot of humor and fun in these stories too and i think they're really uplifting they can be really uplifting or at least feel hopeful by the end that like change is possible and connection is possible can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influences you as a writer yeah so i chose a passage from marilyn robinson's housekeeping this is sort of from the um, middle of the book sylvie stood up and stretched and nodded at the sun which was a small white wintry sun and stood askant the zenith although it was surely noon. We can go up there now, she said. I followed her up into the valley again and found it much changed. It was as if the light had coaxed a flowering from the frost, which before seemed barren and parched as salt. The grass shone with petal colors and water drops spilled from all the trees as innumerably as petals. I told you it was nice, Sylvie said. Imagine a Carthage sown with salt and all the sowers gone, and the seeds lain however long in the earth, till there rose finally in vegetable profusion, leaves and trees of rime and brine. What flowering would there be in such a garden? Light would force each salt calyx to open in prisms, and to fruit heavily with bright globes of water. Peaches and grapes are little more than that, and where the world was salt, there would be greater need of slaking. For need can blossom into all the compensations it requires. To crave and to have are as like as a thing in its shadow. For when does a berry break upon the tongue as sweetly as when one longs to taste it? And when is the taste refracted into so many hues and savors of ripeness and earth? And when do our senses know anything so utterly as when we lack it? And here again is a foreshadowing. The world will be made whole. For to wish for a hand on one's hair is all but to feel it. So whatever we may lose, very craving gives it back to us again. Though we dream and hardly know it, longing like an angel fosters us, smooths our hair, and brings us wild strawberries. Do you want to share why you picked that? I've been revisiting housekeeping lately um, as a sort of solace in our, our current times where everything is really scary and, and there's a lot of loss happening and I finding it really comfortable and like, or just really a balm. Um, there's a lot of loneliness in this, uh, in this book, a lot of isolation um, and people who are sort of lost, but um, there's a lot of like real tenderness and real huge feeling in there too. And in this passage in particular, you, you know, there's a, there's a feeling of lack and absence. You can talk, you know, she's talking about the trees and like 
being but being made of salt instead of fruit and um wanting to feel the pressure of a hand on one's head that isn't there and sort in sense like really craving human touch and human contact and missing someone but it also feels really hopeful to me like like there's an expectation of I'm feeling this loss right now but this will be this will result later in abundance when I do have this this connection again it will, I will feel it even more intensely how much it means to me because I have missed it and um and then the language is also just so poetic and beautiful that I think of some of the internal rhymes that go on like with rhyme and brine for example in that passage and like there's a, it's very lyrical and, and building and meditative. And um, I think it's just masterful and something I, I could maybe one day aspire to writing as good as that. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Uh, sure. So I was going to actually pick the, the ending of um, the ghost story, um, the Realtor to the Damned. So this is like a longish paragraph into the end of the story. The ancient Greeks divided ghosts into several types, Eidolon, Eroi, Adaphoi, Umbra, Larva, Lemure, Imago, Plasma, Effigy, Mane, Mulabri. Canadians have their Windigos and the Inuit, their Angiacs. The Japanese, their Voluptuous, Vulpine, Cocotenos. As long as there is space and time and real estate, there will be ghosts. There are ghosts who distress, ghosts who simply wish to impress, and ghosts here to redress their crimes. There are poltergeist ghosts who play pranks, housekeeper ghosts who clean without thanks, avaricious ghosts who rob banks. There are ghosts of the theater, ghosts of the opera, ghosts of the cinema. There are ghostly miners digging in coal-stained overalls. There are ghostly bakers preparing ectoplasmic croissants. There are ghostly surgeons performing ghostly operations. There are ghosts inhabiting ghost towns in the American West. There are ghostly traveling circuses and ghosts on skates circling roller rinks and gleeful ghosts sledding down wintry slopes. There are ghosts dancing across the floor of the ozone disco in the Philippines who were dancing in the club when it collapsed. There are ghostly hotel guests and ghostly bellhops. There are ghosts in tennis matches, the ghost of a jockey galloping on top his horse at Happy Valley Racecourse in Hong Kong, and the ghost of Andrew Irvine, who perished ascending Everest in 1924 and has stayed to assist struggling mountaineers. There are ghostly deep-sea divers who succumbed to the bends, strapped onto ghostly oxygen tanks. There are ghosts who operate ghostly ships, dirigibles, and trains. There is my text message ghost, then there is the ghost of my wife. We didn't discuss what we would be like as ghosts ourselves, or when one of us died, if we would return to haunt the bereaved spouse. I imagine I would be a rather bumbling spirit, unsure whether to stay or leave, and in the interim, I'd try to be helpful by organizing the pantry or tossing junk mail. My wife, however, would not have opted to become a ghost. She was the decider in our relationship, but by refusing to let go of our ghostly hobby, I was turning her into one, an entity in my mind that was and was not my wife. A memory is altered each time it is recollected, so whenever I long for my wife, I lose her more and more. That's another fact in support of the existence of ghosts, for what could be more ghostly than missing someone so intensely that you can no longer remember her as she was? And tell me more about you choosing that. So that story, um, when I was originally drafting it, I, I had this 
the idea was like I want to make an ex an encyclopedia of ghosts because um, like it's a, it's a uh, you know a project that is also doomed to failure similar to the mother and not Setsuko trying to remake her daughter into the same daughter that she lost. Um, an encyclopedia of ghosts could never be fully complete because you know there are always new ghosts being created. Um, but that was sort of uh, removed and like that had a sort of dissociation and a lack of emotion in the story just by having it in this sort of list form um, that I, I rewrote it. And that's when I added in the, the part about his like his wife and his his ghost hobby and, um, you know, his relationship with this text message ghost after I read that article. Um, and that, that really made it into a story for me instead of just this sort of experiment. But then I, so I reworked this whole like list that was this, um, that was the original form of the story into this sort of meditation on ghosts and grief and was able to make it, I think, into something more moving by the end. Where do you write? So, um, I really find it hard to concentrate out in public spaces where there's like noise or like say a coffee shop. Um, where someone is, you know, taking a spoon on a, on a cup or on a conference call. So I usually write at home. We have a, a one-bedroom apartment in New York City, and I'm usually in the bedroom by a window, looking out the window, um, and my partner is in the other room. Um, and we have a, a great thing that a, a, my friend Rita Bullwinkle recommended in an article for The Believer called the Marpac Dome Classic White Noise Machine. And that, that makes it so like I can sort of sit in silence and compose stories. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? So I, I love walking and taking long walks. So I'll just go outside and um, I live in Alphabet City in uh, New York. So I found all these wonderful little community gardens, these sort of hidden they're not hidden per se, but like they're just tucked in a corner here or there. These these really small patches of of soil that people are growing, you know, flowers or um, vegetables in. And I'll, they're open to the public, and I'll just go in there and sit and think. And it's a nice little patch of quiet and normally very noisy city. And then I'll just go and keep walking uh, throughout the city and and just you know not worry so much about what I'm drafting, but oftentimes like sentences will come to me or the solution for a story that I was struggling with will come to me that way. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? So I have um, a lot of friends from my MFA as well as some friends I met at the Breadloaf Writers Conference a couple of years ago where I was as a, a work-study scholar. And um, they've become really, really close uh, friends and readers of my work and we show each other like first drafts and get feedback on on our um, our structure and our language and I'm so so grateful for for those friends of mine that I'm able to to share my work with. How have you dealt with rejection? That's not always easy there's a lot of rejection in the writer life um, one piece of advice that there was an article I think on lit hub a couple of years ago, which is that you should aim for a hundred rejections a year. So one thing I'll try to do is if I get a rejection, I'll just send the story out again and just immediately. And then if it, you know, I'll just keep doing that for a while. And if it comes back enough, um, I'll maybe then look at it again and say like, okay, 
Um, is there some way I can revise this to make it more successful? But then you revise it and you repeat the process and you just sort of realize that it's not personal. It's just, you need to find your right reader. And I also just then re also recommend junk food in a movie if it really gets you down. And what is your favorite word? Um, so it was a word I was actually able to put in one of my stories, um, which I, I felt like a big accomplishment to me because it's a sort of unusual word. Um, but the word is cicatrix. It means like a scar remaining after a wound that has healed. Um, or it's also the scar that's left after the falling of a leaf on, on sort of um, the tree. And I, I just think it's, 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 I love the way it sounds, the C sounds, and then ending with that X. And um, I was able, I once, I, I don't know where I read this, but I once found it, I think, describing like, the path a boat cuts through the water, like it was called like the cicatrix of the wake. And it's always stayed with me. Um, but I put it into architecture for monsters as describing like, um, she's created this porous mesh panel. Um, and people are touching it and they're leaving cicatrixes behind cicatrices. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate it so much. Thank you for asking such wonderful questions. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Mary South, author of You Will Never Be Forgotten. If you like today's show, check out my interview with Ben Marcus. We talked about his short story collection, Notes from the Fog. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 290 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Tara Shea Nesbitt, Michelle Bowdler, and Marie Mutsuki Mockett. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.